0: Hey Ben, I thought it would be fun to create a podcast talking about our community mental health program project for you, so let's go ahead and start. Today we're talking about creating basically an ideal mental health program and I decided that I wanna focus mine on the population that I've been working with for the last year, which is moms or pregnant people with children under the age of five who are struggling with substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. To begin the project, I decided that I wanted to come up with a name for my program, and I came up with Roots of Recovery. This name alludes to the idea that um, substance use doesn't come out of nowhere, that there's a foundational issue in um, the lives of people who use substance use as their uh, main coping mechanism. And um, specifically with this population, I've found that there's often um, multiple instances of trauma and uh, lack of access to resources and usually generational patterns of use and abuse. Um, My mission is to empower, encourage, support, and heal mothers so that we can create strong, healthy families and communities. My vision is to create a healing community for these families that provides co-occurring treatment child care, positive parenting education, job training, and housing to families struggling with the impacts of generational trauma, addiction, and poverty. The values of my program are that we value community, patient individual rights, compassionate care, and advocating for the needs of families. So I've already identified that this program is going to focus on the needs of mothers and women and uh, childbearing or birthing people. And I know that my language is gendered, and I do understand that some people might find that problematic, but I do think it's important to focus um, specifically on the needs of this population. Author Angela Davis in her book, Our Prisons Obsolete, talks a little bit about the historical punishment of women in England and then later in the United States, which has adopted much of our laws based off of old English law. Um, She writes that women tended to be punished for revolting against their domestic duties rather than for failure in their meager public responsibilities. The relegation of white women to domestic economies prevented them from playing a significant role in the emergent commodity realm. This was especially true since wage labor was typically gendered as male and racialized as white. It is not fortuitous that domestic corporal punishment for women survived long after these modes of punishment had become obsolete for white men. The persistence of domestic violence painfully attests to these historical modes of gendered punishment. I think this is important to touch on because although it is not popular right now to talk about um, gendering parenting or gendering treatment, there are some historical issues relating to historical trauma that women are still living in today. Um, And in order for us to address the needs of families, we do need to pay attention to these historical patterns. Um, So I I am gonna keep the language of women versus just parents or birthing parents so that I am paying attention to these issues. So that kind of helps segue into the next question, um, which is how is this program gonna be trauma-informed? So first of all, the target population is going to be mothers and their children from low socioeconomic status. Um, I imagine that we're going to have a very diverse population, um, and so I would like the program to be aware of different cultural and ethnic issues um, in specific populations, which there would have to be a ton of training on cultural competency and curiosity about um, cultures that you're not part of. And understanding that we need to probably adjust treatment to make it um, appropriate for different uh, different populations. And um, so also that, that is part of being trauma-informed is understanding that a white woman from a middle-class income background is going to have a, a different experience of this world than let's say a black woman that came from a lower socioeconomic background or um, maybe somebody who came from uh, a recently immigrated family. Um, In her book on trauma-informed treatment, The Restorative Approach, author Patricia Wilcox wrote that a trauma-informed program is more than a specific manualized treatment approach. It's a treatment environment in which all staff understands the prevalence and impact of trauma on the mental and behavioral health of youth or let's say people in their care. It's a treatment environment in which all staff provides appropriate interventions that will decrease rather than increase the effects of trauma. Within the program, the agency provides clinical treatment which includes trauma assessment and when indicated evidence-based treatment for trauma-related programs. She goes on citing Hopper, Bassick and Olivet as saying, trauma-informed care is a strength-based framework that's grounded in the understanding of and responsiveness to the impact of trauma that emphasizes physical, psychological, and emotional safety for both providers and survivors. And that creates opportunities for survivors to rebuild a sense of control and empowerment. She identifies five critical dimensions in trauma-informed treatment. And those are safety, that's physical and emotional safety, trustworthiness, um, so that's you know creating, creating healthy relations uh, between staff and patients and between patients and one another, making class tasks clear and maintaining appropriate boundaries, which we'll talk more about later. Choice, prioritizing consumer choice and control, and collaboration which is maximizing collaboration and sharing of power with consumers. And last but not not least is empowerment. So prioritizing consumer or patient empowerment and skill building. Um, So the way that I understand these considerations, it would mean that the program considers patients and their children as equal participants and stakeholders in their treatment. Behavioral issues would need to be handled in a democratic, respectful, and egalitarian way that prioritized healthy communication and conflict resolution. We wouldn't focus on punishments and rewards as motivations um, because they're coercive. <laughs> they're, they're not allowing patients um, the right to decline or to, uh, to participate voluntarily in their treatment. Staff would be thoroughly trained in positive discipline principles, uh, non-punitive and non-shaming communication, healthy boundaries, and patient grievances would be heard in a democratic way. And individual community advocacy and autonomy would be encouraged and prioritized in the treatment model. The next question you asked us to consider when developing our program was how our program might be located within the recovery model, and I went back and looked up the paper by Mark Reagans called Person-Centered Versus Illness-Centered, and in it, Reagans writes that the recovery model prioritizes relationship. He said, if people don't return, even the best assessment and treatment plan is a waste of time and paper. We should have a variety of outreach and engagement offerings to welcome people, whether they come voluntarily or involuntarily, that precede assessment. These offerings should be based on helping to meet the person's goals directly. For example, we might help by actually listening to make someone feel better. We might help them straighten things out with their family or boyfriend. We might give them instructions on how to get a two-week hotel voucher from the welfare office or advocate for them to get their SSI check restarted. We might call family to get money sent for a ticket home. We might give them a cigarette or a quiet place to think. We might give them lunch or a day labor job to make $20. Or we might even give them an explanation for what is wrong with them so that they're less confused and more hopeful. After we've been helpful, perhaps a number of times, the person may be engaged enough with us to form a collaborative service relationship. Now, I think this is, a very ideal perspective and, and although you did invite us to build this program in if we want a world that isn't the one we currently live in, I did want to keep it focused on uh, my actual experience working in mental health and trying to resource families. So I think Reagan's has a tall order here and this starts looking like social work. Um, but on the, the paper from Freud and Forenzi that we read a couple or last quarter, they also talked about how, you know, Forenzi in his work with um, homosexual people in, um, in, in Europe in the early 1900s, that he understood that if we're going to work with under-resourced populations, we can't just be doing... Um, traditional psychotherapy without also engaging in having some of the foundational needs of patients met as well. So with that in mind, I would want there to be a lot of training around person-centered therapy for all staff and clinicians and understanding that we're working with a population that is very high need and they're not going to be able to engage in treatment if they're concerned that their children don't have a safe place to go. They're not going to be able to engage in treatment if they're detoxing from opioids, um, if they have a MRSA infection, if they um, you know, haven't uh, seen a dentist in six years and their teeth are falling out. So we will have to make sure that those foundational physical, um, emotional, and safety needs are met first before we can ever hope to engage a patient willingly in treatment. And so I thought it would be fun to make the next question you asked us to consider was funding. And, you know, my first thought was that I would want to work with Medicaid, um, because I think that's how a lot of people from low so- low socioeconomic populations actually get access to care. So, you know, they go to the hospital, the hospital finds out that they have state medical or maybe they don't have any medical care. Um, and, you know, let's say that they're referred to treatment because they were in a car accident and they were, um, under the influence or you know something happened and it was found out that they were high and then they get referred to treatment by the court system and because they're poor um they're going to be um be sent to medicaid funded programs so i really do want to stay somehow connected to that system because i i don't think poor people are generally going to be looking for for private programs. I don't I think a lot of times they don't even know that those resources are out there and you know they just kind of happen into them through the system. Um but there's lots of issues with Medicaid funding. Um there has to be evidence-based care uh for um, substance use disorder treatment programs or addiction treatment programs. A lot of times, they have to have like CARF de- designation, um, CARF accredited programs, which really, in some ways, limits um, the scope of what you can do with people. But I don't think it limits as much as um, is commonly believed. I think a lot of people just adopt these evidence-based models um, and like behavioral models because it's easiest because the framework is there but i think we can really bring in depth anyway and and i'll talk about that more later so i would like to be medicaid funded but that's also not going to be enough to create programs that are are, you know um that are good (laughs) um so i also am going to look at other sources of funding so I would like to staff a full-time grant writer who is looking for uh, philanthropic grants or fundraising through community programs Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about where I'm situating my program later uh, as part of that but I would also like to engage the community so um you know, I think a lot of people, when I've talked about this population of working with moms struggling with drug addiction and their babies, I think that there's a big there's an emotional response from people. And I think that engaging that emotional response and letting people know that, you know, we, we don't need to just feel sorry for people. We can also do things to encourage and uh, participate in this treatment and in an effort to create a better society Um I think that people do want to help. I've given a couple talks recently um, to local organizations about this and and really seen um, a a public interest in engaging in a helpful way. So I would just, I would like to somehow um, capitalize on that for this program. Um, Political barriers to funding and community support. And again, I'm kind of touching on that, like CARF accreditation is one. Medicaid funding and rules. There's going to be health department, um, you know, uh, expectations to meet, um, I mean, labor and industry. (laughs) There's all sorts of things. Uh, It's very, the more I think about this program, the more I think how difficult it would truly be to build something like this. But I also know it's possible and um, that you know, we would just need a lot of people working on different areas of, of how we could get licensed and certified to create a treatment program. So the next question is about how we're going to interact with, acknowledge, engage, um, and prevent subtle coercive practices in community and mental health treatment. I think this is a great question. So um, one of the, the books that I've spent a lot of time reflecting on is Restoring Sanctuary and Creating a Sanctuary Model around mental health treatment. And in it, you know, the sanctuary model puts a lot of responsibility on the, um, the leaders and the, um, staff in the program, um, to understand that, you know, their behaviors and their beliefs really have extreme implications for the patients. Um, and that, you know, when a patient or a staff member feels unsafe or threatened, that, there is something there probably in the policies or the procedures of the program that possibly initiated or triggered these feelings. So one of the things that I think I would wanna do is is create a lot of trainings on personal responsibility, um, non-violent, um, uh, nonviolent communication. Also, I mean, really, <laughs> um, educating staff, not just clinicians, but staff on on, um, studies like the Stanford Prison Experiment and how when we do put ourselves in positions of power, we have um, a higher likelihood of creating oppression for others. So I think this would have to be like a constant conversation and something that we're almost always looking at um, as a community to guard against this. And, you know, other than that, I don't really have a ton of ideas other than it would just be part of the conversation maybe at staff meetings, um talking about patient grievances, looking at um how we engage with patients and are we doing kind of a power over or are we are we looking at them um through like a companioning lens in their treatment. So as this program is is geared towards meeting the needs, not just of the parents who are the patients, but also of their children under age five, we're going to have to have maybe a little more flexibility than a traditional program that was just geared towards the recovery of an adult. So um, I would start the day between 6 o'clock and 7.30 in the morning, allowing patients to decide what is the best wake up time for their children's and their needs. So from 6 to 7.30 would be time for wake up, personal hygiene, get dressed, um, make your bed, and just make sure whatever you need for your your day is ready. And then breakfast hours would be open from six o'clock to eight in the morning. And that would be time, again, to feed yourself and your children um, and have a leisurely breakfast, hopefully. And then um, from 8 to 9 a.m., there would be the option of either a morning mindfulness walk or a yoga class, and the yoga class could be with kids as well. And I think this would just be a nice way to kind of start the day like mindfully, maybe do a little bit of meditation or integrate in there. Not all patients will have their children with them too because a lot of them will be CPS involved. And so it might be nice to choose like a morning mindfulness walk where there's no talking, whereas somebody with children might choose yoga where they can engage their kids. Um, during that time, patients could also have the option of taking their kids to daycare. I would have daycare hours open at 8am. So if, you know, if moms really needed a break starting at that time in the day, there's no judgment about it. You can drop your kids off at 8am. Um, from nine in the morning to 1130, I would have what I want to call trauma informed recovery. So this would be kind of like, you know, a core recovery class, um, that would be mandatory probably three days a week. And it would be um, maybe an amalgamation of different practices like 12-step or ACT, um, and maybe even like the Red Road to Recovery, just allowing patients different models of, of sobriety support. And I would also be weaving in like Gabor Mate's um, understandings of the root of addiction and T- creating a lot of understanding around uh, generational and historical trauma, and how that also plays into substance use and abuse. Um, this would be mo- mostly like an instructional class, but there would be um, different steps for patients to complete in their recovery. Um, I would be using things like narrative therapy, um, you know, story t- like st- storytelling for patients to kind of. Um, imagine, uh, a narrative in their recovery that they can externalize and help them understand it a a bit differently. Um, and then a couple other days a week I would have, so that'd be like maybe Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And, um, say like on Tuesdays or Thursdays, I would have something like family cooking time or family art or, um, games with your kids. So a a different, completely different focus. This focus would be on skill building and communication within the family so that the focus is not always on sobriety and drugs, but instead building resilience and uh, creating new traditions in the family. From eleven thirty to noon, I would have lunch, or to twelve eleven thirty to twelve thirty, there would be lunch for all patients and staff. Patients would have the option of picking their kids up from daycare or for leaving them there, so kids could have lunch in daycare or they could have it with their parents. Um, and then from twelve thirty to one o'clock, I would just give a half hour break for reflective time. Patients can, you know, use the restroom, go for a walk, go be by themselves in their room, attend to their kids, journal, whatever they want. It's just free time. Um, from one to three o'clock, I would on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays have a positive parenting class. So that would be, you know, really focused focused on education, on stages of development, attachment theory, healthy relationship boundaries, communication skills in families like teaching I statements. Um, And I also would be including education on, like, healthy relationships. So, like, domestic violence processing. This would be something um, that would just be with the parents themselves. Children shouldn't be in the room unless they're, like, under six months old because of exposure to traumatic stories. Um, Same with the recovery class. Um, And on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I think I'd like to do something like Art therapy, equine therapy, um, you know, exercise <laughs> therapy. Get them out of their thinking brains and instead um, get them into their bodies, doing like somatic processing. Then from three to four p.m., I would do a process group, and this would be daily. Uh, 3, three o'clock to four thirty. Excuse me. So this would be daily. So patients would meet with the, with counselors um, assigned to. Them and um, as a group process how they're doing in their recovery, what's going on in their families, what kind of um, maybe uh, interpersonal issues they're having in treatment. Just give them time for non-judgmental processing and um, community time to come up with solutions in a supportive environment. From 4.30 to five o'clock, there'll be time for um, patients to pick up their kids from daycare and just do some family downtime. And then we would have open dinner hours from five to 7.30 p.m. And this would be like, we would just call it like family choice and open dinner hours. So the cafeteria would be open and then there would also be um, a playground. Um, There would be an art room and there would be an exercise room. So families could go be outside and be physical with their kids. They could go create or make art or they could like go do yoga or have some kind of quiet time in a, like a quiet exercise space. They could also use this time to like call partners or family um, or zoom with them, whatever works for them. From seven to nine o'clock pm, we would call that uh, evening wind down. So this would be what I call like baths, books, and bedtime. So um, parents would be encouraged to choose peaceful activities with their kids that are um, centered around their rooms. So creating bedtime rituals and creating um, traditions around that, which I know a lot of families don't have that are coming in um, and, you know, because they're going to have a, a lot of awareness around developmental needs of children, they will over time understand how this is important. I would leave weekends kind of unscheduled. So for weekends, I would think about doing um, like park days, field trips, family groups, visiting hours. Um, I think it's really important that patients do have passes so that they can have opportunities to test out their new skills and challenge their sobriety while they're in recovery. And I would probably want like a certain set time before they're allowed that or offered that, like maybe 30 or 60 days or reached a certain point um, in their assignments so that they feel confident in their skills first. And of course we would make exceptions if you know a family member is sick or um, there's some kind of medical need or something like that. Of course there would be an exception, but otherwise a family, if they just wanted to like go see family or do some kind of um, outing, there, there would need to be like certain steps met first. I think the question about ideal staff member is a really important question, especially for this uh, for this population. So um, reflecting on my experience working in a long-term residential rehab, I think it's very, very important to have staff who themselves are part of the recovery community or have some kind of connection to someone who is. And I also see that it creates a lot of issues with counter-transference, projection, and boundaries. So I think the best of both worlds would be to have staff who have this identified connection, but who we're doing um, a lot of training with on counter-transference and boundaries and projections. And um, I see that when when this is present, when when staff is aware of You know really what they're doing or what need they're meeting by engaging with patients in this population that we we have great outcomes because there's more of a community mindset rather than somebody who's getting involved in this work because they have ideas about who these people are and what their reasons are for substance use So thinking about the kind of patients that I would have in this program, um, patient one that I created is named Ashley. She's a 27-year-old mother who identifies only as white when asked about her heritage. She has a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter, each from different fathers, who are currently placed in foster care uh, with a family member when she comes to treatment. Uh, Both the fathers of her children are not actively involved in their lives. One's in prison for car theft, and the other one is homeless and currently actively using. She's been diagnosed with severe substance use disorder, primarily using heroin and fentanyl, but also using meth as a secondary substance. Ashley has been through three different 28-day rehab programs by the time she comes to us. Two were court mandated and one was voluntary. She's had multiple arrests and involvement with CPS, all in relation to her drug use for the associated behaviors in um, acquiring and using drugs. She's referred through drug court to our long-term program because she has had to sign the paperwork stating that if she does not stay sober within a certain period of time or engage in treatment, her kids will be put up for adoption instead of just be in foster care. Um, This scares her, this idea of losing parental rights for good and so she's decided to come into our program. She, uh, at her intake appointment, states that what she fears most is losing her children. Additionally, in her intake, she's identified a family history of drug use and alcoholism going back at least three generations. She has multiple identified experiences of physical abuse, abuse, sexual abuse, and traumatic loss in her life. She indicates that both her relationships with her children's fathers included domestic assault and when asked about her history of use, Ashley said she started drinking and using marijuana with friends at age 13. She also tried meth for the first time that year at a party. She very quickly started using a few times a week. And um, by the time she was 16 years old, had dropped out of school and was using daily, often on her own. So she's, um, she has a couple years of high school Uh, but did not pass and identifies that one of her goals is to complete her GED and someday she hopes to get a job at a a daycare so she can see her kids after school. Ashley reports that she has lots of family and friends support for getting sober, but when asked additional questions about that, she also admits that most of her family and friends are still actively using themselves. The second patient is Reyna, and Raina is a 32-year-old mother of four. Two of her children have been adopted, and she does not want to talk much about them. And she has two others living with her grandmother right now, ages eight and seven. Reyna uh, identifies her primary substance issue as meth, which she's been using for the last 15 years, she has multiple relationships uh, with men and is not quite certain of the paternity of her children. She also um, reports that sex work is her number one source of income, which she started doing um, due to a boyfriend introducing her after they started using meth together. Um, Raina is also referred to us through the court system, but for her, it was for being arrested multiple times for sex work and her children being taken away and basically getting to a point in her life which she says she can't survive anymore if she keeps going the way she is. Um, Raina has hepatitis C. She needs to receive treatment for it, which she's also hoping to access in this program. She also would like to have her tubes tied so she does not have any more children, which is a concern of hers. And she um, identifies that she does have family support. Everybody does want her to get sober, um, but she feels very othered and no longer close to any of her family members. She did graduate from high school and worked odd labor jobs like housekeeping, store cashier, and retail jobs in her teens and 20s, but as she got further and further into drugs, it became harder for her to have employment, and she has not had employment that she can claim for at least 10 years. Um, Raina has identified that some of her goals are to be able to have employment, if not to get custody of her children back, to at least be able to see them consistently, And she also says to be proud of who she is, is one of her big goals. When asked about uh, sexual violence or sexual abuse, she kind of shrugs her shoulders and doesn't wanna go very far into it, but it's clear that that's also um, an issue for her. So this question about how would the program respond to an acute crisis is really broad. So I just thought of one specific crisis and that would be a patient who is violent or threatening to staff or other patients. Um, And I could see this happening pretty easily, especially when someone's first coming into treatment and they aren't entirely regulated yet. Um. So what I was thinking was, first of all, we're gonna prioritize safety of patients and staff, but also the person in crisis. So get everyone out of the room or out of the building that doesn't need to be there and only have the people necessary to help calm this person down and empathize them with them, one or two staff. Um, <clears throat> I think it's really important to keep in mind what Dan Goldman says, as he's quoted in Restoring Sanctuary, which is that emotional explosions are neural hijackings that occur in an instant triggering this reaction, crucial moments before the neocortex, the thinking brain has had a chance to glimpse fully what is happening and decide if it's a good idea. So, you know, I think keeping this in mind that patients aren't probably doing this on purpose, first of all, this just may be evidence of really limited coping mechanisms. Um, And also that the best way to approach this is through regulation. So the staff needs to be aware of how to regulate themselves first. Is their breathing calm? Are they grounded? And how can they then start supporting that for the patient? So, you know, regulating their own breathing, not telling the patient to breathe, but just paying attention to regulating their own breathing, being near the patient, but not too near, Um, being aware of the space they're taking up and not crowding the patient, but letting them know that they're there for them and they're just going to wait it out with them and not being threatening. Um, empathizing. So naming the patient's feelings. Uh, I can see you're really upset right now. I can see that you're very frustrating for frustrated. This has been a hard day for you. Um, uh, just reflective comments, empathizing with the patient's process. Um, I would also, you know, once the patient is able to ground in their body, if they're open to it, ask them if they can, you know, can you feel your feet on the ground right now? Can you feel your body in the chair? Um, Just really getting them to be in their body and be present in the moment and see that there is not an immediate threat around them. If they are saying, you know, they need this thing, they need to talk to their boyfriend right away, or they need to call their mother, or "They they just need a drink, Maybe we can't do exactly that thing, but we might be able to offer some alternatives. Um, If it is possible to let them talk to the family member in question, I think we should do it. If they might just need a drink or have something to eat because their blood sugar is crashing, um, we we can do that for them. That is not rewarding bad behavior. Um, so I'd also see, you know, can a compromise be reached? Maybe the patient wants to get the fuck out because they're over this place. Okay. We can say, we understand that, but maybe you could just stay through the night. How about we just, we check in tomorrow on this. I hear what you're saying. I know you want to leave. How about just trying to get through tonight and seeing how you feel tomorrow about it? Um, we're not going to threaten punishments or offer rewards. And again, Just everything would be about empathizing and trying to help patients ground in their experience and um, creating safety, however we might be able to. The next question is about what sort of environment or physical space the program inhabits and how this specific space supports or inhibits the mission. So because we're gonna get to create an ideal program, I decided the sky's the limit here and I really went wild with dreams I would have for working with this population. So the first thing I did was I created the program where the one that I work at currently is, which is in Everett, Washington, in a blue collar neighborhood which is, um, closely located to the downtown area of Everett, which is where the walk-in clinics are, where the Medicaid funded healthcare providers are, where they have access to, um, the DSHS offices and CPS meetings or visitations and where they also can walk to the park or, um, just be close to having their needs met or the best system. I don't think it's, it's a good idea to put patients far out in rural areas where they can't access the needs that they have, the psychosocial needs they have. Um, and the other thing that I really wanted was I wanted multiple buildings. So I was thinking I would like uh, one or two buildings for housing and patients would have nice bedrooms with good light and they would have shared bathrooms um, and a community room in each building, maybe like at most five or six patients um, on a floor or on a building so they could do a lot of community building. I would maybe only want 20 to 30 patients at a time in treatment and their children. I would also have a building just for daycare, so state-of-the-art daycare facilities with you know indoor developmentally appropriate play areas and outdoor play areas because we live in the northwest and you know weather isn't good all the time um, year-round, so it'd be good for them to have both options. I would also want to have a, a really wonderful kitchen and cafeteria um, with again good light, access to the outdoors. Um, fresh foods. I would want to partner with local farms and organizations to get real food into these mothers to help them to replace um, all the minerals and vitamins that they've been lacking um, in the years that they've been using leading up to being here. Um, I also would want to have transitional housing nearby. So either have our own transitional housing that we built or buy houses in the area where we could house patients while they're getting back on their feet. And the last thing I really wanna do is to have some kind of um, business. And the more I thought about it, the more I think I would really like to do a restaurant or um, like a thrift shop or something like that where patients don't need a ton of skills to, to start and they can learn on the job. And it can be supported by the local economy and local community, and we can help do job training for people who don't want to go to college right away, or maybe that's just not going to work for them. And so, I would want all of that to be part of the the um, the program. I also would want to engage, like I said before, the local neighborhood in this program, and then contribute things like, you know, like have our patients. Um, have them do a specific amount of volunteer work in the program. Like they can, you know, pick up trash or they can help with park cleanup days or just, you know, make it open-ended, but really kind of build in kind of a practice of gratitude um, and like stewardship for your environment and the community around you and, and leave it open for patients to choose to do or not do, but really explain how this is helping our community have a good opinion of our program and um, just creating reciprocity in our actions the theoretical foundations of my program would be rooted in feminist psychology person-centered care developmental psychology and trauma-informed practices and maybe a little bit of object relations thrown in so that we really understand um, on an unconscious level as well the importance of You know these early relationships and the development of self um in the walsh article walsh says that studies have found that the effects of trauma depend greatly on whether those wounded can seek comfort reassurance and safety with others strong connections with trust that others will be there for them when needed counteract feelings of insecurity helplessness and meaninglessness Times of great tragedy can bring out the best in the human spirit. Ordinary people show extraordinary courage, compassion, and generosity in helping kin, neighbors, and strangers to recover and rebuild lives. So I really think central to my program would be an understanding of the function and the necessity of community to help people better their lives. That this is, you know, people don't get sober in a void. And um, if we really want to create better lives, for families, there is some responsibility that we all shoulder in order to do that. I would like to use narrative therapy in um, a lot of the the classes in the program. And I also would like to bring in principles of harm reduction. Um, So, oh, going back really quickly to narrative therapy, In the Landau article, it says that, Weingarten taught us that we can transform violence by drawing our resources to become compassionate witness, thereby changing the behavior and reactions to families and communities. The narrative therapy approach helps individuals and families to revisit their dominant stories. Similarly, communities can be helped to view the prevalent themes in their history as themes of resilience rather than vulnerability, thus increasing family and community connectedness. Um, So I also would like to bring in principles of harm reduction. So that means that, you know, if we have patients that have opioid use disorder, we're going to help them get medical assisted therapy. So they're either um, going to be offered um, Suboxone or Sublocade or Methadone. And they're going to be offered, you know, detox services so that they can be in treatment first. Um, Then also because sex work often is really intrinsically tied to substance use disorder, we're not gonna take a moralizing or shaming approach to that. Instead, we're gonna recognize that it's actually you know, the oldest job in the world and that if um, our patients are going to do it, we just wanna help them do it safely. So we're gonna give them access to prophylaxis and, um, and birth control. We're going to make sure that they get tested and that they know where to access uh, STD testing sites Um, And we're going to, you know, really talk about if this is what they plan to do when they leave, how can they do it in a way that's um, safely and non-traumatizing for their children, Um, because I think that's another big consideration as well. The last two questions we have are, does psychodynamic depth or imaginal or psychoanalytic psychology inform my program at all? And if so, how? And I would say yes, absolutely. So I think that one of the things that um, depth psychology does is it really brings in an awareness of unconscious factors. So if we're just looking at the issues of these patients from behavioral or um, socioeconomic or biopsychosocial um, perspectives. We're getting some of the story, but we're not getting the story of why are people compelled to use even when it hurts them and it hurts those around us. It's kind of the big underlying question. And um, I feel like we get some of those answers, from psychoanalytic and psychodynamic um, and like object relations theory of how really mother is is the environment that we come from. And when that environment is um, not able to be present or that environment is dangerous, it affects us in ways that we we don't really fully realize until we find ourselves in these situations and so I would want to always have kind of an overarching depth perspective to everything we do um, honoring the people we're working with as you know people that are doing the best they can but that there has been um, a rift uh, that they've experienced at some point in their life that they're still trying to heal from um, and the very last question is, how do I plan to address vicarious trauma and burnout with um, staff and clinicians? I think by the way, this is a really excellent question. Um, I think this is really hard to do in part because the kind of people who are be going to be um, uh, interested and attracted to this work are people who you know have problems with codependency and, and have problems. With uh, holding firm boundaries and for caring for themselves, you know, kind of this this whole bleeding heart archetype or whatever. So the first thing I would want to do is, you know, like I've said over and over again, lots of training and boundaries, lots of training, and you know, just more of a um, non-pathologizing perspective on substance use and crime and sex work and broken families and abusive behaviors. Um, and I would really want to pay staff and clinicians very, very well, <laughs> um, which, you know, this is again an ideal program. Um, I think that nobody should start for less than $20 an hour, including residential staff. And, um, you know, the more education and experience a person brings to um, their role, you know, they, they should be considered for higher wages. Um, I also would really like to have master's level or doctoral level clinicians present for oversight. And that would require that we have the kind of money to pay people to do that and not just keep them in private practice. Um, And again, this would be a funding grant issue. Uh, One of the other things that I really thought about was that you know, I know like in my own experience working in community mental health that the stronger bonds that the um, the staff have together, the less likely we are to burn out. So, you know, when, when we hang out together after work or we get to know each other and why we're there helping each other, it contributes to sharing um, the load. So when somebody needs a week off because they're burned out, other people are willing to jump in. And again, these feelings of reciprocity. Um, really important understanding that we're not robots that we don't have an endless supply of compassion that we really need to do self-care for ourselves um, to be able to continue in this work it has to be paramount in in the building of the entire program That's it, Ben. Thank you so much for your patience. As I talked through all of these questions, I hope I didn't make it too long. It gave me a lot to think about. I'm going to submit this to you via the Dropbox hopefully today, and I will submit my references separately. Thank you so much for such a great class and um, just for everything you taught us. I hope you're well. Bye.